Hi, everybody. So you are in the breakout, which is about understanding faith. If your first name is Faith, I apologize to you. Your ears will feel like they're tingling if that's what we're talking about. We're on page 44 and 45 in, that, um, in your packets. And there's no special symbolism to this being the very last outline in the whole thing. It doesn't mean it's anything. It just happens to be the last one. Thank you for joining us. Um, let me tell you what we're going to do here in a little bit. Maybe I could pray to start. How's that, right? It's early in the morning, and maybe you're not used to doing this this early. God in heaven, thank you that we are here. Uh, Lord, we thank you that because of your great love for us that we can even consider these wonderful truths. I pray that, again, as we look at the Bible, that you would reveal what is true and wonderful and good in your word. I thank you for everybody here. We pray that you would show up to reveal who you truly are in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the title of this breakout session, everybody there on page 44 and 45, is it's understanding faith, how to have a real relationship with God. I should introduce myself. My name is Dave. Um, if I haven't met you, nice to meet you. I live over in Allentown, and I lead a team in that area, in Allentown, Lehigh Valley, Burke's team area. So if I haven't met you, it's great to meet you. Um, in our day and age, people, I find, I think you'll agree with me, they sometimes use the same words, but meaning can get lost. I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes people will try to speak to one another. Sometimes this happens cross cultures. Sometimes this happens even within culture. They sometimes even use the same words and they say stuff, but things, meaning is kind of lost in translation. I'm told that Gen Z people have their own vocabulary, right? And the older I get, I say stuff and they're like, nah, Dave, that's not, <laughs> that's not what that means. Don't say that. Very similarly, I can't attest to the truthfulness of this. I heard years ago that KFC did this like slogan campaign. Anybody know KFC's slogan is finger licking good? If you speak this language, you can try to verify this for me. But allegedly, years ago, KFC, when they first pushed into parts of China, and I don't know, exactly know what dialect of Chinese it is, but they opened up a store, but they kept the slogan, finger licking good. And you know those cro cross-cultural awkward moments? Turns out finger licking good does not translate so well. If they transliterate that, it means you're, you're going to eat your fingers off, right? Because it's <laughs> finger licking good. And it was like the same words, but kind of lost in translation meaning because of the culture that's grown up around it. You know, I think you know what I'm talking about. Same thing happened to Coors Light. If you speak Spanish, I want you to tell me if this one is true. The company had their phrase, it's the beer company, which was turn it loose. Do you see where this is going? It turns out they took that phrase and marketed that at portions of South America. And it turns out turn it loose is really not translate that well into whatever culture and country they went. Because roughly, you know, turn it loose roughly got something like you will suffer from drastic diarrhea if you drink this, right? You get the idea, turn it, okay, you get the idea, I'm sorry. Same words, different meaning. I think you get the point. <clears throat> and I think that is really funny when it happens in advertising. Uh, I think it is not so funny because it happens all the time with God and with anything related to the Bible. Here's what I mean. A lot of people in our day and age use this phrase. If you walk downtown, they might use this phrase. Uh, I believe in God. Have you heard that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I believe in God. And there are many people who say they don't even, they leave off the God part and they say, oh, yeah, I, I just, I believe. Once someone said to me, just so you know, I'm an atheist, but I still believe. And I'm like, I, I don't know how that even works, right? 
And no offense if you identify as that, but that's a little bit of a contradiction because belief has to have an object of belief, right? What do you believe in? You can't just believe in belief. Uh, and it's hard often, I find, especially in church cultures, to know what on earth people mean when they say, I believe in God. How many of you had any, by show of hands, upbringing in a church environment whatsoever? Anybody kind of like that? So that might be the majority of you, but certainly not all of us. So churchy people, tell me if this is true. A lot of people in the church use this idea of you need to have faith. Have you heard that? So much so when I was growing up, it was kind of confusing. I grew up in like a church environment. And it was so confusing to the point where I would ask questions about God and about the Bible, and people would say, the answer is faith, right? It was like the force in Star Wars. <laughs> you, just, you just sort of lob that in when you don't know the answer, right? It's just, it's just faith. Uh, in this workshop, I want to bring some clarity to that, okay? Uh, I want to talk about what that word means according to the Bible, and I want to demystify it. Because church culture is interesting. I didn't ask you if you were raised in the church by show of hands to try to say you have an advantage. Maybe you actually are at a disadvantage. Because growing up, man, in, 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 a, in a church environment, I just learned that I can answer any question by saying, God, Jesus, the Bible, faith, right? So much so that there's an emptiness to this whole having a real relationship with God. That's why this workshop exists. Uh, I want to bring clarity to that and show you what the Bible means when we say, the Bible makes it very, very clear, please believe in Jesus. Let's talk about what that means, okay? So look at page 44. We're going to read this passage. I think this is a, a tremendous example where it is crystal clear what it means. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read this for us. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is, he asked Jesus to come and eat with him. <clears throat> and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. We're going to read all of this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, of, the, of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, uh, he said to himself, if, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, because she, she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it then, teacher. Jesus said, well, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this 
who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you're confused by anything I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes, we probably will, we will have a time for Q&A at the end. Just go ahead and jot questions down, okay? We'll engage with those in just a minute. These words are written by Luke because they're in the Gospel of Luke. And who's Luke? Luke is a physician. Uh, Luke is an associate of the Apostle Paul, okay? And um, he writes this Gospel to non, a non-Jewish audience so that they can know for real the things that they've heard about Jesus. That's why he's written this. And one of the amazing things about the Gospel of Luke is how all the people you think are going to become Christians don't, and all the people you think don't, they do, right? All of the inside people, raised in the church people, they, they tend to scratch their heads at Jesus, and all the people who seem to be outside people, they, they come in. And that's certainly the case here. Did you see that? One of these people, you could call them an insider, and one of them is an outsider. But look at this. Jesus is interacting in this passage on page 44 with two people who, quote, believe in God. Did you see that? Both of them would say, if you ask him, do you believe in God? Or do you believe in Jesus? They'd say, yes. And the two people I'm talking about is, is, um, is, is Simon the Pharisee and this unnamed woman. So even though he's interacting with both of these people, in verse 50, please let me draw your attention to verse 50. It says, Jesus here says to one of them, one of them, this amazing statement, it's like the last mic drop verse 50 statement here, your faith has saved you. And I want to tell you, Jesus hardly ever commends people in the Bible. Usually the disciples are like fighting and they don't get it. And you're like, oh, you guys don't get it. But this has been one of the passages that Jesus commends a, a person. And, and because one of these people, I want you to think of it like this, has a saving belief in God. And the other has a non-saving belief in God. You follow what I'm saying? One of these people has what I would call the real deal faith. And the other one, you might say, has a shallow, cultural, maybe Disney Channel, sentimental faith. One of these people has biblical belief. One of them has non-biblical belief. And this has been one of the most pa helpful passages for me because guess what? I, I was that person raised in the church. I was that person who said, I believe in God. But I went to almost to through college before someone actually helped me see what it means to have faith in Jesus. This is one of the passages that God used to do it. Here's the first point on your outline. The first thing that we're going to see is the amazing picture of, of biblical faith. Glance at your outlines and maybe hold that open. Look back at verse 36. Let's talk about what it means. What's, what's a picture of faith? Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, start again from the top, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house to, and took his place at, his, at the table. So check this out. Do you know you could say that the Pharisee technically accepted Jesus into his life? Wouldn't you say that? The Pharisee invited Jesus to come over for dinner. He has accepted Christ superficially. And man, if you had, you know, you probably have a Christian fellowship on your campus, a DCF or something like that. If you met this guy, Simon, he's polite and he's together and you're like, this is the guy I want in the fellowship, right? Because he's from a good Christian upbringing and he's religious. And, and, and you think the story is going to be all about the Pharisee, Simon, who seems like he's got his act together until verse 37 drops. And you realize that somebody steals the spotlight because verse 37 starts with, and behold, or ta-da, or and check it out. 
A woman, let's look at it, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them without ointment. Second person in the story does not have a name. The author refers to her as a woman of the city. I don't know if you can read between the lines. Some translations call this a lady of the streets uh, who was a sinner. And maybe you're picking up on it. Luke is being modest when he's talking about this woman. Uh, it, is, it is very likely, I think it is extremely likely, that what Luke means to say here is there's a woman who crashed the dinner party who is a prostitute. And man, if you think you've had an awkward moment, you haven't had this one. <laughs> She's somebody... Let's talk about her for a bit, whose lifestyle revolves around what people think about her. She's a prostitute, particularly what men think about her. And, and I think that is why, did you catch this? She has in her possession a flask of ointment. And this is really interesting. She has a flask of ointment, or you could also say that she owns a vial of perfume. Why would a prostitute own a vial of perfume in an arid Middle Eastern climate? Here's why, because people generally smell a little bit bad. <laughs> and for, for her, as her livelihood, if her livelihood depends on being a lady of the streets, you can imagine how valuable perfume is. You can imagine how um, essential that is to her whole livelihood and her pulling off her job because smelling nice and standing out is the thing that she helps to help her stand out among men, very, very likely. And it says in this passage, if you want to know what faith is, the thing that used to hold up her life, she says, I'm going to pour that on Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, there it is. Right? The, the only way for her to pour this flask of perfume would have probably been to break the vial. And, for, and Luke wants to capture this. And it's like, let's just photo record this for a minute and scripturate this so that there will never be any cultural confusion for church people, for ages to come, for what it means to have faith. You see it on your outlines. It means to have Jesus as your foundation. It means to not think of Jesus in a sentimental way, but in a foundational way. To, to take the step, if you haven't yet, of putting your trust and stepping onto him as the thing that holds up and sustains your life. It's strapping your life to Jesus, right? Just like you could strap your life to a, to, a, to a plane if you want to go somewhere. Or strap uh, uh, a bunch of passengers to a rocket. You know they did that a couple of weeks ago. Did you see in the news that there was a rocket launch when some people went to space? How powerful is our rocket launch? I always love these things. I'm a semi-science nerd. You know how powerful a rocket is? Well, it is so powerful. Liquid oxygen, that thing blasts into outer space. So much so, if you could attach like a little piece of gum to the fuselage of a rocket, do you know what happened to the piece of gum? And let's say it would stick. It's going to space. <laughs> Why? Because it is attached to something powerful. What if the piece of gum isn't really sure if it's going to make it? No, it's going to space. Hey, it could be a stick of gum. It could be a whole trash truck 
Uh, it could be a garbage truck, it could be a garbage can, it could have the most mass. If you attach that thing securely to something that powerful, man, I don't care how that thing feels about its faith because it is fundamentally attached in a foundational way. Oh, it's going to space. And the Bible says, listen, Jesus, if you attach your life to him, you are going to heaven because that's where he is. He's resurrected. And he blasted out of that grave and he's seated at the right hand of God. See, it's more about the object that you're attached to than how much faith you have. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, for churchy people to get. And maybe for people who are non-believers to get. This is how faith works. This is how this works in this passage. This is how it always is. Because what she is doing is she's not saying, I don't have everything figured out yet. She's not, she's not coming and saying, listen, I went to seminary first, Jesus, and I checked everything out, and you, I think, are the son of God, okay? I, I did my homework, and I Googled a couple of stuff, and I think it's you. There's none of that. What you see here is she fundamentally attaches her life to Jesus, and you do the same thing, and you can do the same thing today. And she's saying, this is what now, instead of this stupid vial of perfume that I use to attract men, it's now Jesus is going to be the thing that holds up my life and sustains me. This is where I have attached and hitched myself to. This is why Jesus says that you, you, you take his yoke upon you, that you believe in him. That's what it means to have faith. Most of the time in the Bible, when it says believe in, the Greek literally reads believe into. Do you see the idea? It's like shifting your weight and stepping onto an airplane. Or it's like attaching yourself to a rocket that is going to a destination so that where it goes, you go. And the same is true for Jesus Christ. So let's go back to that question that I started with. Many people in our culture say, oh yeah, I believe in God. And they say that generically or they say that um, sentimentally. I call it makes me feel good to talk about generic belief. I think a better question to ask is what holds your life up? At a foundational level, what is your life actually built on? And this was, it. this was true for me. I don't know if it's true for you. I would say I believe in God back in the day. But really what held my life up was my sense of accomplishment. Like if people think well of me, then I have a great day. If people think ill of me, then I'm just so crushed. Because I say I believe in God, but it's, it's a, it was a sentimental belief in belief. And for me, looking at the example of this woman that Jesus says, that's saving faith. Listen, faith in Jesus, believing in God is not hard. What it is, is you find the thing that gives you the most meaning in life and you transfer it from that thing onto Jesus. For her, it was her looks and maybe this vial of perfume and she smashes it. And for you, that could be, what is it for modern people? Let's think about that. Um, well, you all smell nice. It's not perfume. Uh, maybe you're used to your, 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 your reputation or, or people thinking well of you is definitely in for us. There are people who are enslaved by that. There are people who told me, I can't believe in Jesus because my family will think this of me. Or the person I'm dating doesn't want that to be true for them. So I can't come to Christ. And, and, and that, is a, that is a cost. And my advice is look at this one of the only people in the Bible that Jesus commends. Does she care what people think about her? Did you, did you see what she was doing, by the way? This whole uh, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. 
that's, that's next level, I don't care what people think about me. As a matter of fact, that's kind of, that's kind of gross. Now, I, I'm not, like, you know, not only is it gross, many commentators say that, that in this particular culture, even a woman letting down her hair, it would be a sign of like scandal. She doesn't care. Because her reputation is not her foundation anymore. Like Jesus holds my life. She doesn't have to lean on that. She's actually free. So do you see how even one of these people is named and put together, and the other one is unnamed yet has faith? Who's more free than the other person? Oh, by far. It's this sinful woman who Jesus says, you're saved. This is why Christians talk about being saved. It's because we say that Jesus holds our life up. So here's a, maybe a diagnostic question for you. And I really want you to think about this. Maybe you could even pause and think about this. What is it in your life, if I took it away, your life would fall apart? Maybe that's a way to think about your foundation, right? What is it in your life, if I took it away, you, you kind of unravel at the seams? Functionally, that might be what your faith is in, see? Because that's, that's your foundation. That, that's your foundation. That's your affection. That's your joy. That's what this woman is illustrating for us. What a fantastic passage. What a fantastic passage. He gives us this picture, this picture of saving faith. Second thing real quick, and we'll keep going here. Right after this picture, Jesus gives us a parable. Did you see that? This is really smart because maybe you're there feeling like, Dave, rock on. This makes so much sense. But you know what? It's always easier to see issues in other people than yourself. So Jesus, often after an explanation, he gives a parable so that you can do it. He gives an exposing parable of faith because Simon is like, ew, that's gross. What happens next, I think the turn of this passage is in verse 39. It says, look at verse 39. Here, here's sort of the, the plot twist, right? After this picture of faith, there it is, saving faith. We get verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, well, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him. And she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it. And in verse 41, Jesus gives one of his shortest, most crisp, potent parables. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one 500, the other 50. And, and he canceled the debt of both. Who is going to love him more? Do you see the parable? That's the parable. It's a story. It's, it's, a, it's a story. And Jesus tells a story to help the Pharisee who's going, why didn't Jesus pick me? Like, do you realize who's, who that person is? Again, if you think your Thanksgiving is awkward, <laughs> this is worse. Here's the point. Look at your, look at your sheet. Self-righteousness is fueled by comparison, isn't it? We could call that counterfeit faith. We could call that counterfeit faith. It's right there on, on page 45, I believe. Self-righteousness is fueled by comparison. You know what it's like in college. You know the first test that everybody gets back, right? You know, I know they don't like hand papers back like they do in the old days, right? But you know what you do with the very first exam? You're like, yo, what did you get on the exam? <laughs> oh, okay, all right, that's what you got, that's cool, all right. Yo, what did you get on the exam? <clears throat> what are you doing? 
Well, you're kind of doing a little bit of sense of comparison. So for you, uh, finding a, a way for you to self-evaluate, how am I doing? Because a lot of professors, too, they grade on a curve. You could say that's what's going down in verse 39 in a spiritual sort of way. The Pharisee is thinking, yikes, Jesus, you can't be a prophet or you're not a very good one. Because surely you would know if we do the comparison thing, we got woman on the floor, Simon with the house, who is more awesome than who? Jesus, have you done a cost-benefit analysis of who you want in your kingdom? And you see what's happening? This is why there is counterfeit faith in Simon and often counterfeit faith at large in our culture and in the church because like logs on a fire, comparison of playing the spiritual game of who is more ahead than who is fuel for counterfeit faith. Listen to this quote. If you wish to be miserable, think much about yourself, about what you want, about what you like, about what respect people ought to pay you and what people think of you. And then he says this, we all want grace, but we cannot enjoy the grace of God when there is an attitude of comparing. I think that's really insightful. And I think it's something that maybe you're guilty of, or maybe I certainly know I am, is that this idea of spiritual comparison Maybe there's a healthy way to do it, but by and large, what we do with that, I think you know what I mean, is that we stoke our belief in sort of a, a self-sufficiency. Like, okay, if that person is on the leadership team and I'm a little bit better than that, then I'm okay. But apparently God doesn't grade on a curve. And this is one of the reasons why I think the, 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 the standard of belief in God can be how am I doing relative to the general, generic, evangelical average of our Christian world? Self-righteousness. At least I'm better than this person. I must be doing okay. God must kind of like me because at least I'm not on the floor like that mess. If you find somebody who's like a little bit more messed up than you, you could be like, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. And friends, it is counterfeit faith. The Bible calls that self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. That's this exposing parable of faith. Here's the second thing. We learn, however, that godly passion, godly zeal, or real faith is fueled by forgiveness. What's the point of this little story? Well, this is one of Jesus' shortest parables. And it has one very, very simple meaning. Verse 47. If you are forgiven much... You are love, you love much. If you are forgiven little, you love little. Does everybody understand the parable? <laughs> There's a money lender. Whoever has a greater debt canceled has more godly affection in their life. And this is how it works. I've been in um, campus ministry for about 18 years, and I have the privilege of seeing a lot of students come in to our ministry, and it's also fun to see the trajectory of their lives afterwards, because there's always people, you think, who come in, and they're from solid Christian homes, you know, and they just know all the answers, and they get, right, and there are also people, however, who come in, 
and they often find Christ and a fire of affection is set off in their life. And it's interesting to see the trajectory of people's lives. And I've gotten to see this parable play out many, many, many times. Years ago in our ministry over at Kutztown, I started there, um, and I, I never forget when I first got there, I would be up front teaching to a room like this, and there was this kid, he was a big guy, he would sit in the back, he, he always wore an orange fleece, right? Mm -hmm. And he sat in the back, and he looked really angry, and he would cross his arms and just sit. He would always come late, he would always leave early, and the only time he ever talked to me, he would tell me that orange is the favorite color of serial killers. I am not kidding. <laughs> and he was a big guy. <clears throat> I can't tell you how many times I was explaining, listen, do you understand what it means to believe in Jesus? I'm up front saying this and saying this and saying this. And same thing, dirty looks from the back row. <laughs> couple times I was scared for my life. We were at a conference like this, uh, and I remember I went to the restroom in the main session worship time, and, and I went to the restroom, and I remember we were singing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure, that He would give His only Son to make a, a wretch His treasure. And as I, I, we were singing that, and as I left, and I came back in, and there He was in the orange fleece at the back with His arms crossed, except this time, his arms weren't crossed because he was angry. His arms were crossed because he was self-soothing. He was sobbing uncontrollably. And I walked in, and I kind of stood semi-near him. And worship is going on, okay? People are singing. And he says to me, Dave, I think I got it. Well, what did you get? <laughs> I, I finally got what that song is just talking about that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I believe that. And he turns around, and before I said anything else, he gives me the biggest hug, right? And I am like a crumpled up person at the back. Worship is happening at fall conference. And I'm being held by this guy, and he just keeps going on. He says, I'm, I get it. I'm forgiven. And then he went on. I'm forgiven for coming to Kutztown and hating God. And he kept going. I'm forgiven for, coming, for mistreating people. And I'm forgiven for sleeping around when I came to college. I'm forgiven for abusing other people. And, he, and he's talking while I'm hugging him. I'm forgiven for hating Christians my whole life and trying to make their life miserable. And Dave, I'm even forgiven for wanting to kill you. <laughs> I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. And at that moment forward, because of the massive amount which he perceived, I'm forgiven for, I'm forgiven for, I'm forgiven for. You know what happened? His passion in his life changed. Uh, and, and you see maybe that playing out in this passage. D Jesus says a similar thing here. Look at verse 44. It says, she has wet my feet. Verse 45 says, you did not, but she has done all this. Verse 46, you did not, but she has. And we have, she has, and she has, she has. You get the idea that this woman, her love for God is extravagant. It's not tepid. It's not apathetic. It is extravagant. And Simon, yours is put together, but it's kind of lukewarm. Why is she passionate, but the Christian Sunday school boy is lukewarm? It's because she has a deep sense of her sin. 
And, and I, friends, that should absolutely change your life. I tell you, it has changed mine. Because after being bear hug assaulted by that brother, I had to think for myself, man, what about me? Do I love much? Most of us think that joy in life and passion come if we minimize our offenses against God. Like, God, I, 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 you know, I just need a little bit of help from you, which is why when someone says, hey, don't gossip, you're like, no, I wasn't gossiping. I was just, you know, venting a little bit of frustration. And stuff. That's not gossip. No, no. Minimize offense. Or when someone says, hey, don't be selfish, you're like, I'm not being selfish. I'm being just. <laughs> you kind of sanitize that a little bit. Dave, why are you so angry? You know when someone tells me I'm angry? I never went to law school, but I always seem to become a lawyer. No, you don't understand. I'm not angry. That's righteous indignation or something like that. And it, but here's what the Bible says. If you need a little bit of help, you'll have a little bit of love. If you think Jesus just comes like as a little cheerleader just to cheer you up and give you a Tylenol so that you're spiritually okay, you will have a lukewarm existence. But the most passionate, delighted, and God-centered, free people in the world, please understand from this passage, are those people who realize how big their sin is to God, how big their sin is to God, and how big the object of their salvation is. It's Jesus of Nazareth who has paid for it all. Don't minimize your offense. The Bible says, look in the mirror and own who you actually are. The Bible says, blessed is the one, blessed, happy, joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. So here's the truth. We tend to think hell is for bad people and heaven is for good people, right? The Bible actually says, no, actually hell is full of good people who had no need for Jesus they were, in their mind, so stinking good. And yet, glory, heaven, is for people like this woman who did this, turned and were forgiven. Instead of looking around, if you're not a Christian, look up and ask that God would forgive you. Here's how it works. Instead of saying, God, thanks that I'm pretty good. You say, God, would you have mercy on me? It's as simple as that. That's shifting your weight. That's not looking around. That's feeling the intensity of your own sin and asking that God, who is the object of your faith, would, would secure your life. That's what it means to have faith. Do you see the picture of it? Jesus tells a parable about it. And last, let's end here. Jesus gives us a promise about it. Verse 48, we'll be really quick here and we'll wrap up. Verse 48 says, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are with him at the table began to say, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. So go in peace. Uh, don't hurry past those words. I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be there. I know we've done a little bit of that already, but sinful woman who's a prostitute curled up on the floor, and Jesus looks at her in the awkwardness of everything while they're asking, who even forgives sins? You notice Jesus doesn't answer them. The camera zooms in on him speaking to this woman, and he says, your faith has saved you. This person whose body has been abused, her life has been a wreck, she's probably been the victim of a ton of church hurt. He says, go in peace. 
Why would Jesus say that? Go in peace. Go in peace. Peace, you could say wholeness, rest, forgiveness. That's the promise of faith. If you turn to Jesus and abandon a sense of security, an identity in all these things that prop you up and give you meaning. I'm always the academic. I'm always thought well of. I'm the straight A student. I don't know what that is that props your life up. If you turn to Christ, you will be saved. It's a promise. Take it to the bank. Jesus says, if you turn to him, you have peace. Jesus is going to endure hell for this woman so she, he can make good on this offer of peace. Jesus is going to save her because he was condemned. But I want you to think about that phrase, peace with God. Oh, the Bible talks a lot about that. I bet you don't know any Hebrew, but you might know one Hebrew word. What is it? It's shalom. It means peace. It means being at a restored position with God where you're not at odds with God, and that's why you can have a relationship with God. Right? Christianity is not concerned, like other religions, about superficial outward routines. Instead, Christianity is rooted in having a living relationship with Jesus in your heart. To know God is to enjoy this experience of knowledge of Him in the depths of your soul. It means every day waking up and recognizing, I'm attached to Jesus Christ. I have peace with God. So I have a relationship with God. So God is now a person that I can know and increasingly depend on. If you've ever wondered why Christians talk about our relationship with God, it's because belief in Christ leads to peace. And so believers, true believers, do things like they delight to read their Bibles, to hear from God, though it's a struggle sometimes. Christians read their Bible because they're at peace with God, not because they're trying to please God, because they're at peace with God. And they pray, maybe you've heard of that, not because, well, they're going to get props and Christians are going to think well of them because they're the Bible people who pray. No, they pray because they speak to God, because they're at peace with God. And the goal of our lives is to actually know God more. That's what it means to have faith. Maybe I'll end where I started, though. Is that what you mean when you say, I, I believe in God? Is anybody here having an, is going to have an awkward miscommunication moment when you say that you are a person, a man or a woman of faith? Let me pray. We'll have like five minutes for Q&A. God, we do thank you for your abundant love towards us. Thank you for this compelling picture of what it means to trust in you. I pray that none of us would miss the boat because of, of, of all of the culture that has grown up around what it means to believe in you. Be with us now, even as we interact very briefly in Jesus' name, amen. We do have a few minutes. If there's something I've said that has provoked you, this is your time to shine. Please don't be shy. Um, Mike Chardowich has a microphone. He might even ask the first question, which he always does, as well as um, you can put your hand up. And it's not for amplification. It's for, so we can just capture your question on the, on the audio. So what have I provoked in you in five minutes or less? What thoughts, questions do you have? How are you feeling? Feel free to push back on some of the things that I've said. Dave, some people might say, well, just talking to the microphone. I don't feel like I have a need for faith right now. How would you respond to that? How do you mean? So someone says, I don't have a need 
Like, I don't feel like a need for God, right? Well, everything is going pretty well in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would liken that to saying, you know, if, if Jesus says things like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, spiritually, you can do nothing. Right? So, uh, again, you know, if, if someone's saying, I don't feel like I perceive a need for that, pastorally, I would probably say, okay, just chill and wait, and you will. <laughs> I think theologically, I would say it's parallel to saying, uh, I just don't feel the need to eat or drink. Hmm. That, that would probably be past, uh, theologically how I would answer that. I, I would respect that person saying, I don't feel a need for it. Um, but realistically, I think it would be, that's, it's not narrow-minded to say that if you don't eat or drink, your life will shrivel, hmm. right? That's not narrow-minded because you're created mm-hmm. to function from those things. So the Bible says, listen, if God, we are created for God. So experientially, if you would like to wait and see, I would pray that you come to a position of feeling like, I really do need this. But what you'll find is your heart will be restless until it finds the rest that we just talked about. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I do think students are at a place usually where we don't feel need, right? Mm-hmm. Right before fall conference, I did a funeral. It's very, very helpful for me. You know, conference here, we're all like, yeah, no one's going to die. Mm-hmm. You will feel your need for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, 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 great question. Anything else that we've got? This is your moment to shine. Going once. Going twice. Can I? Oh, you have a microphone. How did you do that? That's Just amazing. talk. They're Go not ahead. amplified. Okay. Um, oh, it's not really a question as more as a thought. Yes, please. I don't know if I'm abusing power here with a microphone. But um, <laughs> um, so long story, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I'm on leadership with my campus ministry. Um, I've done missions training this past summer. But I feel like between um, just COVID and being home and just all these other things, God has really just been exposing a lot of just hard truths and just mm-hmm. even like sins that I didn't realize in myself. And um, I think this passage was really helpful for me in that I built security in trying to be like, I know this much about the Bible and I know all these things and I've been doing this like my whole life and all this other stuff. But he's been bringing me to a place of vulnerability of just like, um, you can't quote unquote try to level up Maybe yeah, in sure. the Christian world of trying to do all these things for me, which you do have a passion for, you're, but you're building it on the wrong thing. You can't try and do all these other things without being at the basis of remembering of why and trusting that I really do love and care for you and that I did die for you. And just um, that verse of realizing our debts are more helps us love better. Yeah. And I think that has brought clarity to me of just like, God, why are you showing all these things that are so hard for me? Mm-hmm. Just like, and just seeing it myself has been so hard. But um, yeah. but it's because I need to know, like, that's in myself, one. That's not God's fault. That's just what's been in my heart. But he's been trying to do it not to condemn me or burden me, but because so I could feel free of it and see how much he actually loves me in it. So Thank I, you. I don't know. Yeah. Encouraging words. So. Thank. Yeah, that is. <clears throat> when I when I first went to college, some of the most healing words that were ever shared with me was I was came from a Christian home. I said, "God, Jesus, the Bible." Right, just to a Sunday school. 
And I really thought I was, I was more like the Pharisee in this passage than the woman. And, and someone once shared with me very much what you're saying, which is Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And someone once asked, why do you spend so much of your time trying to look righteous then? Like trying to give off the vibe that you don't need anything, that you have your act together. Because Christianity is not for those. So that's a very good word. Let me close this in prayer, and then we're going to be in the main session. Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these people. Bless us as we go. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.